And my roommate, Caitlin, and I, that is really loud. My roommate, Caitlin, and I were running late, we thought, because Google Maps took us to Libby Lane. And we are in the McDonald's drive-thru, very confused. And she goes, this isn't right. This isn't right. And I'm like, I think, I think it's wrong. Yeah. So we just start driving down Chipman Road, and she sees Post Coffee, and she goes, that's where it is. And we scream into the parking lot, and we sprint inside thinking we're late, and there's all these tables set up, and nobody is here except for Scott, because it was Shane's, like, potluck coming back from sabbatical, and service was starting late, and somehow two guests did not know about that. And so we really awkwardly sit at a table for about an hour waiting for everyone else to show up. And Scott sits with us and tries to make us feel welcome. And uh, we'd already made plans to visit another church the next week. And so I said, I do plan on coming back, but we will not be here next week, so don't think we're scared off. Um, And then two weeks later, come back to visit again and get to meet Shane. And Shane's like, so who are you? Why are you here with us today? And I said, well, I'm going to be a new seminary student. I'm starting in a couple weeks. This is my roommate, Caitlin. I just finished up an assignment as a youth pastor in Boise. And I take a breath to say the next thing, and he interrupts me, shakes my hand, and says, do you want to be our youth pastor? <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> I just met you, man. Um, so we went out to coffee the next week to talk a little bit more about this, and uh, he starts talking, and he says, you know, I'd, I'd really love to call you to be the youth pastor, but I, like, believe in uh, that it wouldn't be very wise of me to give you a job and then resign, and I was like, what did you just say? Um, so we had finished having coffee, had a really good conversation, and then I just was like on pins and needles for the next like month and a half waiting, like, is he actually resigning? Is he not? Why do I know this? I just met this guy. It was very strange. Um, and so then he did resign, and I called one of my mentors, and I said, so the pastor of the church I've been going to just resigned and said something about me being the youth pastor, and I'm really confused. And she goes, Run. <laughs> You do not need to go to that church anymore. It's interim, just leave. And I was on the phone with her, and I said, I don't think I can. I think this is my people. She's like, no, it's not. Go. Um, I said, no, I really feel like God's just calling me to be here. She said, okay, I think you're dumb, but that's fine. <laughs> we have really frank conversations like that. And, uh, and I'm really, really glad. that you are my people. So that's why I need this up here. Um, I'm just really thankful for all of you. Um, now I'm going to preach so I stop crying. That's what pastors do in case you're wondering. Um, you all know that in many ways I'm kind of going back home with this assignment. Um, and if any of you have seen me... Uh, See my legs, you know that I really like trees. Um, And when I was a kid, we used to play in this wood that surrounded my friend Sarah's house. And this small forest was our kingdom. 
we ran through those woods and we created little worlds that we played in. And Sarah, Courtney, Jenny, the other Sarah and I, had entire storylines that we would play out. We would dress up and charge into the woods with our wooden swords and probably are lucky we didn't impale each other. Um, but then one day everything kind of shifted because off of the back corner of her backyard was a trail that went about a mu- half mile into the woods to a big clearing that had been logged and we would used to, we just used to run through all of the woods. But just off of the trail, Sarah's dad found a bear trap that had been set right off the trail. And then a couple weeks later, he was out again and he found uh, the remains of a deer that had been poached in that um, somebody had gutted it and just left everything and took off uh, the rest of it. And so we couldn't play in the woods anymore because it wasn't safe. We had to wear bright colored, colored clothing so we could be seen by poachers. We had to stay on the path because if we stepped off the path, there could be bear, more bear traps. Um, it was this entire shift. We had to stay on this path winding through the woods And all of a sudden, all these games and all these worlds we'd created were limited to this very narrow pathway. And sometimes I think that as the church, we've kind of done that with Jesus' words in John 14 and treated it like he's saying, you had all this and now you have this little path winding through these dark woods. And if you step off the path, you might land in a bear trap or you might be shot by a poacher. Kind of like in Mean Girls when the sex ed teacher says, don't do it because you'll get pregnant and die. We look at Jesus' words and we think, don't do it, you'll die. If you step off the path even just a little bit, it's all done. You're going to lose a leg. We think if we step off this path, then we are just absolutely lost. But when we take Jesus' words and limit them down to this little path winding through a forest, I think we've really lost sense of where we are. And we've really lost sight of where we're going and who we're following. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles or your phones and need the excuse to get on Facebook, to turn to John 14. I invite you to hear the word of the gospel this morning. Starting at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the place to where I am going, the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Sorry. That was really gross. And Jesus answered him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, 
even after I have been among you such a long time, I have been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And skipping down to verse 25. All this I have spoken while I was still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. I got this for you. Yeah. Now, these last these couple of chapters in John, uh, chapters 13 through 17, even into 18 a little bit, um, it's Jesus' final discourse, his final teachings to the disciples before being arrested and crucified and then being raised from the dead. And so he's kind of trying to cram everything into such a small amount of time and retell them the things he's been saying over and over and over again over the past three years together with them. And he's saying goodbye to this way of being with them. You can maybe see why I picked this passage. And these couple of chapters are we get, where we get so many of the quotable teachings of Jesus that we see on bumper stickers and pillowcases. Here is where we receive Jesus' most extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit, who he repeatedly calls the advocate in these chapters. This is where Jesus says it is better for him to go away precisely because this Holy Spirit, this advocate, will be sent upon them after he leaves and as you read these chapters, you can hear this earnest hope that he has for them to listen and finally understand the importance of what he's been saying to them over and over and over again. But the disciples still don't get it. And this is kind of where the metaphor ends for you guys. I want you to hear that. But the disciples still don't get it. And they won't get it until after the resurrection of Jesus. And so one after the other in this section, John kind of uses these really dumb disciples, to ask the questions that many of us would probably be asking and are probably are asking in the back of our minds throughout this passage. Where are you going? How are we supposed to get there? What does the Father look like? Philip's question there to me is just so bold. Just show us the Father and that will be enough. Just show us God and that'll be enough. Then we'll believe you. Tall order, Philip. And then Jesus responds to these questions with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
I think as the church in general, we've often been really hung up on saying that Jesus is the way. There's lots of songs that say that phrase over and over and over again. But when we say that, sometimes I'm afraid that we forget first what it means for us to say Jesus is the way, what it means for that to be the case. And I think we also forget where this means that Jesus is going to prepare a place. And this, we have to start with that second question before we can get to the first. An ancient saint of the church once said, imagine that you could do whatever you wanted in your life. Whatever destruction, whatever sin, whatever harm you desired, and then you could still go to heaven, but you would never see the face of God. And the saint ended this hypothetical question by saying, if that does not cause you great sorrow, then you have not yet understood salvation. When we put this heaven in front of the face of God, we have made the way a path in a wood that leads someplace not here. It's not simply in this passage that Jesus is saying, we're just going to heaven as a place. In fact, you might notice heaven isn't even really mentioned in these passages explicitly. And I think we've also, I, at least I've heard a lot of Christians that hone in on the no one and the accept through me at the very center of this passage rather than the Father. No one gets to the Father except through me. This isn't Jesus suddenly saying, here's this magical pathway, and now let me put some stumbling blocks right in the middle of it. You have to pass through these gates and have the right passport that has Jesus stamped on it, and then you get through the path. And Jesus isn't suddenly illuminating bear traps or illegal hunters. What Jesus is saying here is that there was no way to the very presence of God, and now there is. And it is Jesus, the Son incarnate in flesh, that is this way to the Father, and no other. We have so many other people and advertisements and politicians and ideologies that are all claiming that they have the ability to get us there. Christian bookstores like to kind of posit it that way, that if you just buy these particular devotionals, you can have a relationship with the Father. Advertisements are built around claiming that they have the ability to give us what we really want. They can give us real life and real hope and real peace. But here Jesus declares that all of these things, all of these politicians, all of these promises are absolutely lying. And there is no other way. We see tens of thousands of advertisements every single day. I counted how many advertisements I could pay attention to in a half-mile stretch of the interstate, and I lost count at 47. That's before I even got on the internet. 
Do we realize that all of these things that we see are making the claim that we need what they have in order to be complete? In order for our lives to have meaning, we must buy these things in order to be happy. Do we realize that our entire culture is so drugged by this myth and this lie of consumerism that is an idol that most of us have no idea what it is to really need something? And so we talk about self-care as me going and buying new clothes or me buying a video game. And we reduce taking care of ourselves to buying something, to spending more money. Do we realize that we are so driven by the fast-paced, no-rest mantra of our culture that we, have to, that we already make decisions on which website will we use, on how fast it loads compared to another site, based on less than a fifth of a second in load time? Our brains have been so wired to fast-paced instant gratification that if a web page takes less than a fifth of a second slower time than another web page, we'll never go to it again. Has anybody else ever like shaken their phone when that stupid app won't load fast enough? I just want to send Snapchats to my niece of me with funny filters and it won't load. It's not suddenly that 13-year-olds have developed a taste for technology and need the newest iPhone in and of themselves because they, this generation is bad. It's because they've been watching us do the same thing their entire lives. That new car came out, that new movie came out, that new phone came out, that new MacBook, that new iPad, that new Chromebook, for those of us that aren't Apple people. I just have bowed at that altar a long time ago. They've been watching us do this, so of course they have the exact same response as the rest of us. I need it. We have politicians who use the name of God like campaign slogans, and they tell Christians who raise concerns at policies to sit down and shut up because they know better because they're the politicians. And that's politicians on both sides of the aisle. Let's not delude ourselves. Our entire culture is screaming at us that if we had a bigger house, a better house with a hot tub and a pool for Ron to service for us, or a nicer car, or more well-behaved kids, or a better-looking TV with a clear picture of that catch for the football game, then we would finally be irrevocably happy. We would finally be fulfilled if only these things came into being. We would finally have been able to attain to immortality and divinity, say these things. A radio advertisement I heard the other day called this the season of giving. No, that's bad. And it's just going on constantly all around us to the point that we don't even notice it anymore. I thought, I've heard this advertisement at least four times this week, and I just noticed it. And Jesus steps into the center of this and sweeps all of those things aside and says, no. The only way to real life, the only way to realness at all, the only way into the very life and very heart and very being of God who created all things is only through Jesus. My brothers and sisters, 
We are not going simply to a place, but we are going into the very person of God. Going to the Father, Jesus says. And until we know that that is where we are going, we will never know how to get there. We aren't just going to someplace else, or someplace better, or someplace different. And this Jesus says that he has gone before us and created a way where there was none. And that this way leads to God and all the wonder that God is. And this way is God's very nature and very being and very self revealed to us, unveiled face to face with no more dividing wall in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And that Jesus says, it is not only good enough that you have seen me, but I will also take you to see the Father. Take you to see this very God that shaped you and made you and is healing you right now. Into the presence and loving embrace of this God is where Jesus has prepared a place and made a way for us. This is the same God that would soon be poured out on a cross and this same God says, yes, the whole reason I have come is for this, for there to be a way for you to enter the presence of God freely. So it's not really a place, but then if we take this seriously, it's not really a path either. In some sense, it's not really a path at all. It isn't just the path into the woods that I grew up running down. And it's not as if Christ had says, Step only in these exact places upon this path, like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. You know, when he has to remember that there is no J, there is no Y, and he has to figure it out, and if he doesn't, death. That's not what Jesus is leading us into. It's not a cosmic game of guessing. And when we think that it is, we spend so much time trying to make sure we do exactly the right things and avoiding exactly the wrong things so that we don't drink, cuss, or chew or go with girls who do. Nazarene joke, it's fine. Um, that eventually I think we just convince ourselves that whatever we want to do is fine anyways. Whatever I want to do or was going to do is probably what Jesus wanted for me anyways because then I don't have to worry if it's the right step. And we stop listening to the voice of Jesus saying, maybe that's not the best thing for you. Maybe you should do that. Because if we just stop listening and tell ourselves this is the right path anyways, then at least we avoid the anxiety of stepping off of it. But this is such an anemic and bloodless vision of what Jesus is telling us here. Jesus doesn't say, here's the path, walk upon it exactly. Step in my steps like a five-year-old. When we talk about this way like that, we've done away with this wide open freedom that God is actually creating here. That in Christ, God has offered us a wide open field. And if we say that Jesus is instead giving us a path, we've taken this wide open field and made a sandbox. How many of us have heard the gospel portrayed as, it's a playground, but you have to stay in the sandbox. 
That's the one thing God said is don't do these things. So stay in the sandbox and then you get to have fun when you die. That is not what Jesus says when he tells us that he is the way. Because it's not an objective thing out there. It is a person. The very person of Jesus Christ is the way and all is in flesh glory. And this way, this person is life itself, he says. Not only is he life itself, but he is truth itself. So all those discussions that I went through in junior high about objective truth and how to convince my biology teacher that he's wrong about evolution because Jesus is giving me objective truth, that's not helpful and that's not actually true because Jesus doesn't say, here's objective truth. Jesus says, I am truth. Truth is not something we can grasp and own and manipulate It is a person that breaks out of our norms and breaks out of our boundaries and breaks out of our sandbox. Life isn't hiding behind our next purchase or next pay raise. Life is breaking into all of our brokenness and jumping out of God's very self and only there, nowhere else. And so Jesus responds to Philip's very very reasonable question. Show us the Father by saying, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. The Father is not hiding behind a blind rage with Jesus standing in the middle. The Father is the same one who sent the Son. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus isn't a utility isn't just a placeholder that God says someone has to die. Might as well be him. Jesus is this way that God has opened for us. And all of God's self is the destination. And we, as the body of Christ, are being drawn and led into the very presence of God. We aren't just stuck waiting for heaven. Nor are we just stuck where we've always been. The good news of the gospel is that, believe it or not, the best is still ahead. But the good news of the gospel is that this future is not statically out there and we must rush through the woods toward it, but that that future is coming towards us constantly. It's not standing and waiting for us. It's like the father of the prodigal sons who rushes down the road after the son that has run away and is dirty and smelly and sinful. It's like the father who exits a well-lit house into the darkness of the night to seek out the son who was blinded by his own self-righteousness and was mistaken about what it means to be a son of this father. This future is rushing toward us in the person of Christ brought to us by the Spirit. But walking alongside of Jesus is a lot more scary and a lot more beautiful than simply staying on a path and not doing the bad things and only doing the right things. But the key is this. We see in this passage that we are not alone on this journey.
we have each other, even across a great distance. And we have the Spirit, and we have the Son, and we have the Father. We are the very furthest thing from being alone in the woods. So church, let this be my final word to you, at least for a little bit. We'll come see you. Christ says, my peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. The world promises us that which it can never deliver. And no matter of guns, alarm systems, money, fences, hiding, laws, or more wars will ever give us peace. The peace of God is not just a stop in violence. It is the abiding shalom of God, which is all things set right as they should be. Shalom. In Greek, pax, at times. This is the peace of Christ that is the state in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the peace that Jesus says, I give to you now, not then. This is the peace that we abide in and live in as we walk along this way with Jesus, even in the darkness, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of this transition. And during these times, this peace is the very breath of God in our lungs to give us another step forward. Brothers and sisters, the image of shalom is a wide open field where there are no dangers, no bear traps, no poachers. Where the breeze in our hair is the very spirit of God hovering over what God has made right. We can finally step out of the woods and into this field and we can run free. For the spirit has already been given to us so that we will not lose our way. May you feel the peace of God like the breeze in your hair. And may you know that New Beginnings Church is God's church. And you are a very, very good people and a very, very good example of the body of Christ. Amen. <laughs>